didn't know that was a penny fairing. A penny what? What? You have to go better than that. And all you had was a penny farthing yeah. and they gave you a sugar cube. Honestly, I, I feel like there needs to be a mild amount of judgment in this game where you can't just throw the card and be like, what about a penny farthing? <laughs> well, you know, a opium. pound of oatmeal? Opium. 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 Uh, if I remember the story correctly, <laughs> you managed to acquire that big bag of opium with just a penny farthing. That was a Which good can't be the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Welcome to Which Game First, where we explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we find any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up this week, we head to the pub to swap tall tales in hopes of enthralling some rube into buying us the next round in The Secret Adventures of the Old Hellfire Club. Next up, we build our empires under the sea through vigilance or violence in Aquatica. And lastly, we do what the cards tell us to with a box load of knickknacks in Beat That. I'm your host, Celeste Angelus, here with my decades-long gaming buddies, Ed Povolitis. Hey, the game, guys. Mike Grenier. Uh, yeah, that, that's me. And this week, we've got Joe Unfried back. Thank you so much. Our first game up this week is The Secret Adventures of the Old Hellfire Club, designed by Jamie Frew. Published by Old Hellfire Games in 2020. Number of players, 2 to 8, ages 14 and up. Playtime, 30 to 75 minutes. All right, Mikey, tell us what's in the box. The cover of this box is a tasteful rendition of a man in a top hat, face adorned with impressive mutton chops, and wearing boots with no pants and white boxer shorts, which have somehow caught on fire. <laughs> he seems moderately concerned. <laughs> See, probably drunk off his head. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'm guessing it's because he's as drunk. <laughs> when you peel back this work of art, you'll find 140 beautifully illustrated boast cards and 60 coin tokens. And that's what's in the box. <laughs> Oh, what about the little rule booklet? I love that little rule booklet. I, I actually don't usually mention the rule booklet unless it's like really special. And yeah, I guess this one's pretty special. It's, it's tiny. adorable. Yeah, it's, it's adorable. adorable. <laughs> <laughs> well, before I tell you if this game truly did impress Queen Vicky when I played it with her at tea, just after she watched me slow bowl an ace corker in cricket, <laughs> Mr. Unfreed. Mr. Unfried, if you think you can follow that, give us a rousing recollection of the rules. In the old Hellfire Club, players take on the roles of the destitute final members of an ancient aristocratic secret society as they recount the tales of their greatest adventures to the patrons of the shadiest public houses of old London. Using the numbered cards in their hands drawn from a deck of boasts for inspiration, the players will weave elaborate tales of daring and adventure in the hopes that the drinking den's patrons will offer them a penny for their woes. The boast deck includes a hundred cards in ten suits, themed around a full spectrum of Victorian melodrama, including themes like perils and insults. At any time, another player can challenge your version of the story by playing a lower card of the same suit from their own hand, thereby taking the rewards for the story that otherwise should have been yours. 
<laughs> when the tale reaches its thundering climax, whoever's been given the most pennies wins the game. There's a point, you know, when treachery is so complete and unashamed that it becomes statesmanship. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's just a hint at how much uh, we laughed during playing this game. We got to play this game in person around Ed's table. Uh, which I think was the appropriate setting, uh, if you're not in a pub, I guess. So this game is mainly cards and, of course, the pennies that you could replace with regular pennies, I'm sure. It comes with the cardboard pennies. But this game uses public domain art a lot. There is some original art in it as well, but a lot of this is public domain art. What did you guys think of the use of it? That was smart. Definitely saved them some money, but it also really fit in with the theme. They look particularly homogenous, surprisingly, all from the public domain. They, they definitely fit the theme here. I mean, it looks like a bunch of folks hanging out at the pub. Yeah, it must have taken a lot of curation to get it to kind of all have a similar style. Because even if stuff is made in the same period, it still has a range of styles. But yeah, like Ed said, this looks homogenous. It looks like it fit together really well. I think you hit the nail on the head, Mikey, with the word curate. I think that the game... Uh, the designer did say it was the most labor-intensive part of the game <laughs> was curating the public domain art. Mm-hmm. And I think he did an excellent, excellent job. This is the best use of public domain art I have ever seen in a game. And I have often wondered if it could be used in a game, public domain art, well. Mm-hmm. Um, we we actually made use of some public domain art when we published our old gaming books for the Roll20 system. Um, and it is a lot of work finding the appropriate art. They did a great job with this one. And I had fun with it. It's actually a really clever way to engage <laughs> with older art, right? Rather than just re- mm-hmm. looking at it in a dusty old book. Yeah. This oh, is yeah. a way for you to m- imagine a whole story around it. And the problem of sifting through public domain art is not the quality of the art. It's just that there's a mountain of it. Also, trying to find the art that looks for your theme. I mean, I didn't know that you can actually find a guy with a top hat and jacket with his pants on fire <laughs> in the public domain. Well, that may be one of the uh, that may be one of the originals. Although yeah. it would be awesome if it was. <laughs> I, I want to know if that's domain. real. <laughs> Could the fire have been added in? <laughs> oh, you think they touched up the art? Yeah, that's possible. I feel, though, like that they found interesting art first and then put the theme to it in the game. You know what I mean? I don't think they pre-made every single thing they were going to say first while designing it. Right, right. So that makes sense, especially in the fact that there are patron cards and benefactor cards, right? So the benefactor cards are people and so are the patron cards. And it actually took me a couple of minutes to figure out what the difference was between patrons (laughs) and benefactors. The benefactor cards want you to tell a story about a certain theme, such as heavily insult-based or heavily place-based. And then the and so you're sort of playing to their interests, the benefactors, and they'll give you bonuses for that. And it's kind of an indicator of who um is doing the best in that particular suit, as it were. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the patrons are just these random people that like a certain thing when they hear it. 
they have special powers, basically. Yeah, sometimes it benefits more pennies, and other times it's more of a, a way to interfere with others. Right, kind of like they're just sort of yelling from the crowd and getting involved <laughs> themselves. Yeah, it'll say something like, if you're telling a story about places, they'll give you extra pennies for every place that you use in the story. Or some of them are counterspell, you know, basically I call it counterspell from magic, but basically it'll be like, ah, cancel whatever your patron was trying to do this turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is It is like the crowd getting involved, which mm-hmm. is great. Um, the meat of the cards is the boast cards. And there are 10 categories, which means, Mike, there's 10 mm. suits. Yeah, too many suits, if you ask me. Because when you're trying to prevent the person from getting points using whatever suit they're using, you have to slide in with a lower card of the same suit and kind of counter their story. The with dreaded it. tuck. Hey, do you remember the time when we <laughs> <course>. went... <laughs> when we went... <laughs> I like how you address somebody else. <laughs> do you remember the time we went to Whitechapel? We were pretending to be poor folk, hat in hand, just for a good laugh. And then we went to Parliament and you... You tried to get through the door with your rifle, with your own prince's consort's own rifle brigade. And when you were caught, you were beaten about the head with a policeman's truncheon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I had two nines. Oh, that's it. You get that Yay, one? Yay, I get a card. Yeah. Now, Ed, this is primarily a storytelling game, right? It's a storytelling game because your, your basic goal is to tell a story and then uh, tie it to cards you play. And you're also trying to build on to the story of the prior person. So you're kind of like, you know, carrying on. But, no, I'm I'm sure, no, no Joe over there was going to the bar, but I was just went down to the street to the, the tanner shop, and boy, did it smell there because <laughs> whatever. Yeah, right, right, and that's, that, that's where the tuck comes in. Mm-hmm. You're trying to undermine the other members of the old Hellfire Club. You're all together as members of the old Hellfire Club. You're trying to undermine them by tucking a lower card underneath that basically calls them out for exaggerating or being wrong, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so for example, if I played a gorgeous dress card and I talked about the time that I uh, had a lovely lady on my arm wearing a gorgeous dress and then somebody plays a uh, you know wrinkled corset card underneath it or something like that. Oh, you mean that wrinkled old corset that she was wearing to the party? That's what you're calling a beautiful dress? Exactly. And the higher the number on the card, the more elaborate the item or object was, right? The more elaborate the thing is, such as if you're using the insult category, the more elaborate the insult is if it's a 10 versus Mm -hmm. a 1. So, for example, the object cards, a 9 is the Victoria Cross, which is like the medal of the um, Victorian era. For mm-hmm. soldiers, and the number one object is a rubber duck. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I won the Victoria Cross when I went across the bridge first and charged into the old, you know, Russians. Mm-hmm. And then you're well, like, that's odd. I seem to recall you while wielding a rubber duck at the time. Yes, didn't you call it incorrectly somehow? And fell off your horse before the charge was even called. <laughs> and yeah, and once somebody plays that one, the lowest possible card in that suit. There's nothing lower, so that person will take away the victory from the person who started off with that 10. How did you guys like the play where you're constantly, you're navigating both telling a story, managing 10 categories, and trying to figure out which card to play? 
to try and get those pennies while keeping in mind your benefactor and avoiding any patron interference. It sounds like a lot, but once you're in the game, it, it just kind of flows. I found myself listening to the stories being told more often than not. It's just like, oh, wait a minute, I can play a card now. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you can get distracted. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm never going to ever win this game because, this, you know, there is a strategy to it where you try to play like uh, a category that nobody has in their hand or you just stick to one category that they can't undercut because you've seen what they've played already. But I just want to keep telling the story, you know, and you can get a lot of points if you can get away with it. But every time you add a card, it gives people another chance to undercut you. Yeah, but that's your push your luck element there, too, because as you keep on adding to the story, there's potential for you to earn more points there. Mm -hmm, true. And if you can pull it off, yeah, that's a lot of pennies. Yeah. But uh, everybody is kind of like uh, looking at their cards and seeing if they can undercut you. And so I, I kind of enjoy kind of like playing with my card, making it look like, oh, boy, you're screwed now. I appreciate <laughs> the chaotic nature of the suits. It matches the muddled thinking endemic to a gin mill environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. That's actually a very good point. Gin uh, is connected to juniper and it's been traced to 11th century benedictine monks from salerno italy god bless them gin was considered a real bane in the victorian era <laughs> i'm no i mean it was called a destroyer oh, of lives it was, yeah it was really considered a destructive alcohol a lot was going on at the time that gin came to london uh spirits were kind of rare in England to start with before that time. And the reasons involve, you know, taxation and grain taxes and tariff arguments with the Dutch and the glorious revolution and maybe the fall of the Stuarts and Oliver Cromwell and stuff. But the important thing... <laughs> Good God. The important thing is that gin was suddenly plentiful and cheap throughout London. And without it, we wouldn't have some of these awesome pictures. Yeah. Before that, if you were <laughs> like middle class or something, you drank beer, and that was the end of that. Yeah, and gin is a far cry oh, from it beer. Is so much more potent than beer. Yeah, not as many sing-alongs, you know, or or <laughs> or uh, friendly camaraderie, you know, at uh, a gin mill the way you might find at a beer hall. Yeah. Probably more duels than celebrations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what did you guys think of the theme? I mean, I think it, it's a, a rich setting in a way for telling boastful stories. It kind of lends itself to like, ah, oh, the aristocratic society, they wouldn't stretch any tails now, yeah. would they? <laughs> and once you put the voice on, you almost have to boast. You know, you don't have a choice. So after my long career in art fraud... <laughs> <laughs> where I earned all that money after my other criminal career, I decided that the corset wasn't enough. I'm also going to eat the best foods. <laughs> so I decided I would, would try a, a oh, delicious man. meal of deviled kidneys. Time to loosen the corset. <laughs> uh, topped by nice bit of crumpet. Isn't it a great story? Yeah, and no. tell me more. <laughs> Come on. Liver, crumpet, and who was Liver, your company? Crumpet. And to top it off, <laughs> for dessert... I took a huge quantity of opium. <laughs> and a great element of this storytelling game is that you're not judged on the quality of your story. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, Joe is going to win all the time. I mean, because he, he tells the best tales. There's just no beating that. It's 
actually driven by card whether or not you win the trick or not, as it were. As good as Joe is at storytelling, you know, and the fact that he's published, what, six novels would probably imply that. But as good as he is at it, it's also, there's also a benefit to quick thinking in this game, which isn't necessarily the strong suit of of a good writer. You don't have time to prepare a story to present. You've got to get in there with a card to to halt your buddy from grabbing the pennies. And and that leads to some strategic choices, not just a luck of the draw, as it were, type of game, strictly speaking, because you can try to keep track of what cards have been played, play the odds a little bit. And you know, when you have a low card, you can say, well, am I going to save this in case someone tries to trip up my story? Or am I going to save this in order to trip somebody else's story up? I said forget about saving anything. I just wanted to vomit out as many cards as I possibly could every turn. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great thing. When you pull it off, you have that epic turn because you played like five cards. Great. But since you draw your cards at the beginning of the turn, you're going to have no bullets in your gun until you start your next turn. And yeah. Ed always had just the right bullet to shoot me down with every time. <laughs> <laughs> the only card that can beat me is a one in this suit. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, I was just an agent of chaos for the most part because I wanted to tell a story. You know, I just started throwing my cards out all the time. And then I, I can never, I never had a strategy. <laughs> so basically I would just be like, oh, I'm out of cards. Or I ended up messing myself up by just playing extra cards because I wanted the story to keep going. Oh, yeah. And then just allowing people to tuck under me because I just kept playing cards. So they kept getting options to tuck. I played three cards in the same suit, and I had a perfectly good story with a great score on the board, and Celeste, of course, talked me into playing that one last card that she could tuck under. <laughs> but it was worth it, because the story got better. The game designers guarantee that deeply obsessive research has meant every plot hook in the game is anchored in terrifying historical reality. I mean, I know I had to look up some of the insults. Like, I did not know what a gong farmer was. <laughs> Does anybody else know? I have no idea. No. So it sounds hilarious. So, <laughs> so it's one of the insults. It's the number nine insult. So you know it's a good one. So gong was actually slang in Britain, Victorian Britain, for poop or a latrine. So a gong farmer was a guy who who went around and shoveled out the latrines. Uh, you know, the other one's like Wagtail, Lick Spittle. Uh, cat's Meat Man, I think, was another insult of the time. They would take substandard pieces of meat and throw them out into the street so that the cats would gravitate to that street and there'd be less of a rat problem on that street. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury... The Secret Adventures of the Old Hellfire Club. Ed? I found myself enjoying hearing the story told more than actually spinning a tale of my own. But I also get the side-eyed folks sometimes to foil a plot they push. So I'll dig this up for another round of not-so-serious gaming. Mike? This game reminded me of the show called Chopped. I love creating interesting things from a mixed mystery bag of ingredients, so definitely dig this up. Joe? Oh, one more round. Just one more round. Dig it up. This game now has a special place in my heart. 
It's just the kind of thing I like to do with my friends. Watch them think, watch them create, and best of all, watch them perform. Dig this game up for each and every night with or without gin. If you'd like to play The Secret Adventures of the Old Hellfire Club, DM me because I'm in. <laughs> or if you have thoughts about The Secret Adventures of the Old Hellfire Club, reach out to us on social media. We would love to hear about your adventures. Our next game up this week is Aquatica, designed by Ivan Dazowski, published by Arcane Wonders and Cosmodrome in 2020. Number of players 1 to 4, ages 14 and up, playtime 60 minutes. All right, Mikey, tell us what's in the blue box. The cover of Aquatica follows a galleon drifting peacefully on the sea with a shark-sized fin in its view. But Beneath the surface lies a world of treasure and sunken ships, and the fin is attached to a gargantuan beast poised to swallow the vessel whole. Those who dare to dive into the briny depths will discover a game board, four unique three-layered player boards, 24 starter cards, 18 ocean character cards, 8 unique king cards, 56 unique location cards, 39 Manta miniatures, and five double-sided gold tiles. And that's what's in the box. Well, before we dive in, Joe, splash some rules on us. In Aquatica, players become one of the mighty ocean kings, struggling to bring glory to their realm. Each player starts off with the same deck of characters which are used to capture or buy locations, recruit new characters for their deck, and complete goals. Players also start with four manta rays, which represent resources or actions that can be used only once until their Matrona card is chosen to restore all spent mantas and characters. Locations that are acquired are placed on a unique board that is used to track the progress of its full assimilation. As players move their location up the tracker, it unlocks special abilities, resources, or even the coveted wild mantas until it reaches its last line and can be scored. Four special benchmark goals are printed on the board. If a player reaches one of these benchmarks, they may sacrifice one of their mantas to claim victory there. The earlier a space is claimed, the more victory points it's worth. The game ends when a player has a manta in all four categories, or the deck of characters runs out. So we did get to play this game live, too. And boy, oh boy, what did we think of that blue in this game? And what I mean by that is, what do you think of the look and components here? It's very blue. <laughs> blue is the ocean is Oh, deep. my blue. It's like a million shades of blue. It is. It's blue, 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 blue. I wonder if it's too much blue. Oh, there's some green in there, too. It does feel a little oversaturated of blue, it's like to the point where it's like you're seeing everything through blue-shaded goggles. Yeah. Uh, you know, the art is so competent that it seemed a shame to me to all be so blue that it started to look homogenous and generic. Like, they all started to look the same, despite all the detail and effort made. When I looked at the board itself, the whole thing being blue... It made some of the pieces of art stand out, the ones that didn't have that same tone to them. 
Um, I wish they would have just avoided that blue color on the actual um, cards. What am I, yeah, on the cards. It, it would have helped. Yeah, it would yeah. have definitely helped. And then they put a blue border on the card as well. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I get it. It's in the ocean. So, Ed, what kind of game is this? This is your classic engine-building game. You, everybody starts with the same hand of cards. What you buy, what you conquer, it's going to make everybody's tableau different. Ed, you made it sound so epic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. You, you're really building a deck as you go, and your deck isn't the kind of deck you draw from. It's a, a handful of cards that you choose when to play. They're, the cards are activities that you do during your turn, right? Mm-hmm. That's what your mm-hmm. hand is. It's yeah, just, exactly. It's basically choices that you can make. Imagine that it's like your turn action options. And then right. and you just throw one down and say, this is what I'm doing. Um, and yeah. then you go do it. It's fairly simple. The card tells you what you can do. It's like, all right, play this. I, I can buy a location. Great. Yep, it doesn't well, let you conquer. This, yeah. And you can conquer a location. Mm-hmm. And some of them give you a little bit of strength bonus along with it. Conquer. I got one fighty, two fighty. I got two fighty. Two fighties? Oh, that's sad. <laughs> this giant junky pile. Two fighty. No, that's not bad. It's like he gives you one coin and then two victory points. Two fighty. Two fighty. Two fighty it is. Two fighty. And uh, the cards are considered characters. The Matrona is the one that I mentioned, uh, that we mentioned in the rules, that helps you reset all the characters that you, and Manta Rays that you've already used. But there's also stuff like the Meg, which helps you to conquer a location with a discount. And the more of those kind of cards you add into your deck, the more options it adds to what you can do and the more bonuses to doing those type of activities. So it really forms your strategy as you, as you acquire cards. They'll go right to your hand so you can play them next round. The cards are simpler than they seem at first glance. How so? There are, well, for one thing, there's a, uh, for one thing, there's a name and instructions on the card. That helps a lot, yeah. It doesn't impede the art. Well laid out. It is well laid out. And I really appreciate having the instructions for what the card can do on the card. Too many games are like, here's a card, here's the reference chart. Yeah, as opposed to here, it's a dive card. Well, what does that mean? Am I going to do something else? Yeah. Or what does that mean? You know, I've got to look it up in the rules. Here, you don't have to do that. The territories that you can conquer or buy look pretty intimidating at first, too, because there's several lines of stuff on there that are just symbolic. Um, but you only really need to pay attention to one at a time as they slide up and get closer to being scored. What do you think of that unique slide up factor in this game? So once you grab a card, you stick it in your little tableau and the tableau slides the card up. So the card does different things depending on how it's slid. I thought that was a cool mechanic that can definitely be used in other games too for other reasons. It's, it's, I've never seen exactly that mechanic before. Your player board or tableau here, it's a three-layer cardboard player aid. It's neat. They definitely um, spare no expense to doing this, and it looks yeah. cool. Yeah, it's really cool. It's very it efficient. definitely and- looks expensive. <laughs> yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed the slide-up mechanic, and the reason is it felt like progress. It felt like momentum. Up, oh, my mm-hmm. card goes up a notch. Up, oh, my card goes up a notch. Something different happens with it. 
I really, that was the best part of the game for me. Yeah, and when you get it fully raised and he did all the little activities on it, you get to score it. Victory point! Or, some cases, new mantas. Wild mantas. The coveted victory points are at the bottom of the cards that you're sliding up. And the more powerful and expensive the card is, the higher the victory points are, but also the more stages you have to go through to get to those victory points, which is good in some ways because there's a lot of stuff that you can acquire along the way, but also it slows you down into getting the bigger points. Well, it takes a lot of action because each turn you can only play one card and only gives you a limited set of things to do that turn. Well, it took you plebes a lot of actions, but for me, I had a card called the Anglerfish, which when I played it, let, allowed me to slide a location all the way through to the end. But then you only have so many Anglerfish in your deck, so unless you're resetting every other turn, mm-hmm. you're only going to be able to do that like once or twice. Yeah, because you've got a blank spot then. You know, you've slid them up so fast that now you don't have any cards to play. Yeah, now all I have to do is score it for eight points, which is huge in this game. I did find myself a lot of times once I'm scoring that I didn't have anything else to do after that. There was, you know, I'm starting from scratch all of a sudden. Right. You know, there is a lot of shopping in this game. And the shopping mechanic is one of my favorite things in gaming. And in this game, for some reason, I didn't love it. It wasn't that interesting to me. I do think, I did give this some thought, I do think some of it had to do with all the blue <laughs> so that, that it didn't really feel detailed enough, despite mm. the fact that it is highly detailed. It just got a wash in the blue and it sort of washed away the interest for me. Are you saying that you didn't feel like the things that you were trying to purchase were very different from each other just because of the color scheme? Exactly. That's exactly ah, okay. it. And also, hmm. I just don't think there was enough detail about them. You know, for example, the places you're conquering don't even have a description. They have a name, but mm-hmm. they don't have a description of any kind. They don't talk about what they are or what's happening there. You know, symbology is there for that. Like, I'm looking like, ooh, I need more money. I'm going to try to get this location. Well, get me more money. Exactly, Ed. So you're looking at the mechanical aspect. You're, you're looking at the strategic benefit of it. I want to know the context of it. In addition to the strategic benefit, of course. Yeah, sometimes that benefit, though, does help to tell the story. Like if a place has a bunch of gold that you can get each turn on it, you're thinking, ooh, this is like maybe a sunken treasure chest or something like that, you know? Or if there's just like a lot of conquering going on, maybe you feel like it's a village of of underwater people wielding tridents trying to conquer territories, you know? Sometimes the mechanics can help. I can imagine a story, sure. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, the whole point of having the the theme is for them to provide me with the story and then that. for me to sort of want to work within it. Well, I mean, I'm looking here at, at a volcanic eruption, like on some kind of hydrothermal vent. And then in the middle, there's something that looks like an ancient Atlantean ruin. Yeah, if you have a good colored card, then it does break it up a little bit. Yeah. So, Ed, um, what did you really love about these Manta mini powers? Well, the Mantas allow you to little special bonuses that can trigger whenever you need them. Like, ah, I want to buy that uh, Megadon, but I need another buck. Oh, look, this Mantra will give me a buck. Mantra. Flip. Yes, Megadon, come to me. Sort of a, cl- <laughs> yeah, it was sort of a clutch mechanic, right? Like, oh, I'm in a pinch. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It, it, it allows you flexibility in your strategy, like the cards you know, or the actions you can do. But the, the mantras give you like a little side currency that you can use when you need them. And early game, you really depend on stuff like that, too. It seems like a lot of things are expensive when it's first starting up. One of the ways to get big victory points is they give up a manta in order to get bonus points. <laughs> it's the only way to end the game, actually. is to, Well, it's one of the two ways to end the game is to give up one of your lovely mantas to score in a particular category, such as first person to have five different territories in their... Uh, tableau for example and after you played a couple games you can add in the king card which gives everybody a unique starting ability but they recommend not playing with them at the start right yeah for your first game you want to just learn the mechanics of the game and because these things add a twist to your mechanics some way it might be easier to learn the game without the king start your first time and then once you got an idea of what you're going for you can use the king to bring yourself to victory. <laughs> okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Aquatica. Mike? Taking a bunch of weird cards and turning them into killer combos is always fun for me, and this game definitely delivered that, so dig it up. Joe? I not only found this game fun, I found it enchanting. I enjoyed it very much. Put me down for a dig up on this one. Ed? This game goes all in on it deep diving theme and the art made me want to learn a little bit more about this world the mechanics are very easy to follow while also allowing some very deep strategies than the initial appearances may present i'll dig this up for another deep dive of adventure <laughs> well the nebulous idea of being a sea king was not very enthralling for me the theme was not a grabber, much like the ocean floor. It felt distant, muted, and cold. So I'm going to have to bury it. But if you had thoughts about Aquatica, let us know. We are at Which Game First on social media. Come and talk to us. Our last game up this week is Beat That. The Bonkers Battle of Wacky Challenges. <laughs> yes, that is the whole title of the game. Yeah. Yep. Designed by Kate Jenkins and Zach Walton. Published by Gutter Games in 2019. Number of players 2 to 8, ages 9 and up. Playtime 40 to 90 minutes. Okay, Mikey, tell us what's in the box. On the cover, we see a world of towering hourglasses and some very unathletic-looking people limbering up for an Olympic-style competition. When the starting gun is fired, we'll find 160 challenge cards, 80 betting tokens, 10 playing cups, 5 plastic balls, 4 six-sided dice, a set of chopsticks, a memo pad, a tape measure, and a sand timer. And that's what's in the box. Okay, before we limber up and bounce into this review, Joe, tell us the rules. In Beat That, players attempt to complete a series of ridiculous challenges using an assortment of seemingly random objects. The game consists of 10 rounds of challenges. All players attempt the exact same challenges each round. Each player starts with the same set of 10 betting tokens with values of either 1, 3, or 5 points. Only one coin can be wagered each turn. All players then place a bet based on their faith in their own ability to complete the challenge. 
Can you bounce two balls into two cups at the same time using only one hand? <laughs> no. How about racing the stack of pyramids of cups using your elbows with your eyes closed? Nope. <laughs> the challenges split into the following four categories. Solo. Players attempt the challenge on their own. Battle Royale. All players compete against each other. Buddy Up. Work cooperatively with a partner. Duel. Go head-to-head against an opponent. Players who succeed bank their points. The player with the most points at the end of ten rounds is the champion. We champions. All right, so obviously this game's not going to work on Tabletopia. So <laughs> oh, we... boy, that would be a tough interface. <laughs> <laughs> we played it live at oh, yeah. my house. We hosted it, Joe and I. And uh, Mikey was there, Ed was there, and we had a special guest. Serena was there. What? Hey, Serena, shout out. (laughs) It is definitely a party game, so it was great to have an extra person. How about this box and the stuff that came in it? Yeah, the first thing I thought when people were bringing the cups and the ping pong balls out, I was like, what, are we playing bear pong? Yeah. (laughs) It, it reminded me of like frat party stuff that you do, like ping pong balls and red solo cups and like chopsticks. Yeah, it was orange solo cups. Yeah. Oh, they were orange, right? right. <laughs> they weren't solo brand either, they, but they they were reminiscent of the red solo cup. Which For sure. I mean, you look at these, you're going to say red solo cup. For sure. Yeah, For sure. The red solo cups that we all know and regret. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I think that is the intention here. I think you're supposed to do this while enjoying adult beverages. I well, think so. I certainly mean, seemed that way. I think it'll actually improve impo- uh, your performance. I don't think so at all. <laughs> uh, I mean, no, these are that would not dexterity-based games. It might help your enjoyment. <laughs> right. Grab a chopstick and yeah. line up three cups and three balls. Okay. Throw the first ball up and hit it with the chopstick like, so that it bounces like off the table and into the cup. Like this. Yes, three balls. Can do this. Totally fine. <laughs> you got this. <laughs> Some of the challenges are tricky, so you might want to take it easy on the caffeine or the gin. <laughs> yeah, both. Right. <laughs> oh my God, gin would be the worst. Joe, Joe did a chopstick challenge where you're supposed to pick the dice up with a pair of chopsticks and put them in the cup, and you know the first person who tried it had a real tough time with it. And Joe just looked smooth like butter. All those years, see, all those years of living above a Chinese restaurant, Joe, finally pays (laughs) off for us. Huge payoff. Uh, It was well worth it. (laughs) What did you guys think of the the challenges? There's a ton of cards, 160 challenge cards. Oh, wacky. (laughs) Some of them were just like, wow, that just seems like a bad idea. And other ones were, what? Are you ridiculous? No. (laughs) <laughs> There's a show uh, floating around out there called Minute to Win It, uh, hosted by Apollo Ono, a uh, famous speed skater. Interesting choice for a host. It was. It's a very strange choice for a host, but, you know, he does an admirable job, I guess. Good. But, yeah, a lot of these types of challenges are on that show where they use simple household items that you can find laying around to do different weird challenges. And right now with COVID happening, you know... People might not have a lot of board games around the house, so they can kind of simulate this with stuff they have laying around the house as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I mean, you could make your own challenge cards. I think there were maybe even blank cards in there to do your own challenges. 
it came with a measuring tape, which I loved because some <laughs> yeah. of these challenges are you got to place the cup at a certain distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I honestly thought that the challenges were pretty clever considering the f- the components that were in the box, right? You've mm-hmm. got to do a hundred, you got to come up with 160 different things to do with chopsticks, balls, a timer, dice, and cups. Yep. That is a huge order. So I was impressed with what they came up with. I really was. Yeah. None of them really seemed impossible. Well, no, I let me restate that. Some of them seemed impossible <laughs> when you first saw them, and then you kind of get into it, and it's like, oh, I actually pulled it off. Or, or yeah, that was impossible. <laughs> but of course, the, the component that stands out for me is the thing that's on the box cover, too, towering above you, the sand timer. Ah, <laughs> so much stress. So much pressure. Oh, I love that. That's the... That's the only way to do a challenge, a dex challenge, is yeah, with is. a timer. The only way. Ugh. Yeah. I, I normally freak out with timers in games. I usually don't like them. But this this game, it was wholly appropriate. It's important to keep calm and remember to breathe evenly. And check your tabletop for dents, porcelain, knickknacks, teacups, snacks, pizza, cats, and other hazards. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Very important Good advice. tips. Excellent. Excellent. Very, very important tips. We set up these challenges in different places some on the kitchen counter some on the table due to the height differences due to the edges of the surfaces we had to stand at distances sometimes you have to stand right on top of it i did like that the game got you out of your seat would you think about that oh that was cool they had some challenges that actually had you putting things on the floor and balancing something on your head while you picked it up so it got you out of your seat and it used your environment that they knew you had around you to do some of the challenges it might be a good thing to play with uh, people that uh, maybe friends of friends or somebody that you know. Maybe there's someone who isn't uh, who who hasn't played with you very much before. It's a great icebreaker. It's up, out, and about. It's loud. It's raucous. It's it's all the fun things you want to have at the beginning of a party. Yeah, and I like that this game. You bet on yourself. How lucky do you feel? How confident? Are you that you're up to the challenge? No dirty tricks in the game, just plain old clumsiness. That is a nice aspect of it. You're not betting against somebody else, um, or you're not betting that you're going to win over somebody. You're just betting how well you're going to do. That is a nice aspect of it. How did Serena like the game, Mike? She enjoyed it. She had fun with it, actually. Yeah, that's a reminder of some old parties we went to back in the day. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury. Beat that, the bonkers battle of wacky challenges. <laughs> Joe? Uh, I'm going to dig this up. Uh, it's good for people you know very well, people that you just met, kids. Let's dig it up. Ed? I'm not generally one for a dexterity game, but even this old curmudgeon will admit it was fun to play. <laughs> And for that reason, I'll dig it up to yearn for the wackiness of those college years. <laughs> Mike? Even though the components were kind of chintzy, their familiarity gave this game a broad party appeal. And for that reason, I'll dig it up. Yeah, uh, this game gets contextual give up. If you have the right place, right location, and people who are in the mood for a little rollicking, Beat That can be great. Dig it up. If you have thoughts about Beat That, the bonkers battle of wacky challenges, come chat with us. We are at Which Game First 
all over social media. We'd love to hear from you. And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you're doing. Come and talk to us. We're everywhere. If you'd like more perks and content from our show, including exclusive episodes, and I'm not joking about those exclusive episodes. I just went back and looked. We have like six exclusive full review episodes on there. Uh, Plus our weekly patron-only podcast. Bonus points. Dozens of them just waiting for you. You can grab them all right now. If you become a supporter, just go to our website, click on become a supporter today. It's only three bucks a month and it really helps us keep the show going. Join our chat on our Discord server. We're at which game first. Drop in anytime. We're all over that. Follow us on your favorite social media. We're at which game first. Check us out on Instagram. We're growing by the millisecond. Happy gaming, explorers. Savoir faire is everywhere. Not two, but three layers of cardboard. (laughs) Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine.